Um, but yeah, I was about five years old and she started buying me anatomy books and some of the big picture ones where they have like the full body and they have every page as you turn it, it's like mm -hmm. a different layer, um, you know, the skin, the muscle, the bones. And then she bought me a little mini skeleton and I remember reading about the bones and I just remember being very fascinated by mm -hmm. the human body and wanting to know how it worked and how to treat it and, you know, medical diagnoses. I mean, that's a little bit you know, far-fetched for someone who's five. But I think in, in general, it was like at a very basic level wanting to understand um, how the human body worked. And so I think it, I think it kind of took root there because we did not have anyone in our family um, who was a doctor. Mm -hmm. And I did not have any, um, you know, family friends of my parents that were doctors. So mm -hmm. I think the inspiration just mostly came from being interested in the human body and then probably my own subsequent visits with doctors as like a young child, which were very positive. Just like prayers Like gospel hymns That you called in the air Come down, come down Sweet reverence Unto my simple house And rain And rain This is Paul Aronowitz, Health Sciences Clinical Professor of Medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine and host, producer, and engineer of the podcast Mountain Lion. This introduction is the same one I used for all of the Surviving Crisis series, so if you've already heard the intro, feel free to fast forward about 2 minutes and 30 seconds further downstream and skip it. I will not be offended, and in fact, I will never ever know you skipped it unless you find me and tell me that you did that. Today I have an interview for you to listen to in the Surviving Crisis series. The idea for this series actually came from a suggestion that my good friend Dr. Mark Henderson posed a couple years back for a meeting plenary session for the Academic Alliance for Internal Medicine. His idea was a simple one and it was to have a panel of four to five members who would discuss loss, coping with loss, and survival after loss. Unfortunately there wasn't really any uptake on the idea so we put it away. But it kept on nagging at me, all these important and amazing stories that might be of great help to other members in the organization. Fast forward about a year, and I posed the idea to the clerkship directors of Internal Medicine Council, of which I'm a member, and counselors were very enthusiastic in their support of the idea. But in this case, the conversations would be separate and in the form of podcasts. So I want to take this opportunity to thank Mark Henderson for the idea, and the CDIM Council for their unabashed and enthusiastic support of the idea for these conversations. 
You're going to hear a bunch of stories on these podcasts, some so sad that you will, as I did, feel like your heart is being pulled from your chest, but all are inspiring in their own ways. You'll hear about a 13-year-old who literally was a key player in saving his physician father's life, and in another about loss so overwhelming that even as you hear about that loss, you will struggle to imagine how anyone could have survived it. You'll hear about racism. You'll hear about stumbling and falling and getting back up and pushing on. You'll hear a lot about family and how important family is in just about every kind of hard time that there is. And yes, you'll hear about love, because even though this is just another podcast, air quotes over just another podcast, and it's mostly been about medical education, none of the podcasts you'll listen to don't have love come into play at one or multiple junctures. So if you're not a lover of hearing about love, stop this podcast now and go listen to the Curious Clinicians podcast, one of my current favorites, or the TED Radio Hour. A final note. I try to keep these podcasts to what I think is the ideal length for a podcast, about 30 minutes, but as you'll see, or hear anyway, some drifted up to as much as an hour. It was hard to edit down any of these stories after I'd sat, transfixed, listening to them. Hard to take much out of these interviews, but easy to take away a lot from them. Enjoy, and please have a good, safe, healthy day. Elise, could you introduce yourself and tell us about where you grew up, went to college, medical school, and what your position is currently? Sure. So my name is Elise uh, Boykin Harris, now I'm married. <laughs> uh, congratulations. Yeah. Well, I think I got married probably before right before our last, our last one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was born in SoCal, Pasadena area, and um, moved up to Northern California is where I actually spent most of my young formative years um, so I call Sacramento home. I went to Sacramento State for undergrad and then UC Davis for medical school and now here for residency, third year in internal medicine and future chief, oh. future chief resident. Congratulations on that too. Thank, thank you, thank we you. We may come back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> um, so about a year ago, well it's actually a year ago in November mm -hmm. that I interviewed you uh, on Mount Mayan and we covered the USMLE test preparation. Mm -hmm. We'll probably come back to that later in this podcast if we have time, but I was wondering if you could begin by going a, a long ways back really for you at this point in your life and telling me about the events that transpired when you were in the second grade. Yeah, so I'll give you just a little bit of background. So at that time, around eight years old, my family and I were living down in SoCal area, and my dad's job took us up to Seattle, Washington. Um, and so that was a very new place. We had no family ties <laughs> at all to Seattle. Um, and so I was immersed into a new school as a second grader. And coming from California, where I was used to seeing a very diverse population of kids. I went to school with everybody um, and then moving up to Seattle or at that time at least it was mostly um, predominantly white Caucasian people. Um, so I remember our our middle school, I guess our elementary school that I was in at the time, um, if you don't count me and my sister and my younger brother, uh, we were probably a just a handful of black children that were there and the other there maybe five black kids that were there were probably actually half white. <laughs> so there was very little, little diversity. 
Um, and so I remember starting in uh, a new class as a second grader. And, and this was public school? It was a public school, mm -hmm. yeah, public elementary school. And um, I think, I don't, I don't really remember having a lot of adjustment issues. Um, you know, I had always been um, a very, you know, good in school. I was always, um, uh, loved to learn, loved to read. My mom never ha really had issues with me wanting to do homework and things like that. Uh, so uh, probably about maybe a couple months in, um, after being a new transplant to that school, the, you know, you have your teacher, parent conference and uh, the teacher there began to tell my parents that you know I was really bottom of the class like I was really struggling with reading um, specifically reading I'm not sure why that one um, among other subjects and just was trying to guess convince my parents I needed to be held back um, that I needed some private tutoring that I was just I was not performing anywhere near the other children and I think initially my parents thought, okay, well maybe she is adjusting, maybe she's having a hard time adjusting. But I think there was a lot of red flags that went off, especially in my mom's mind, because I loved to read. <laughs> like I really loved to read. I like I remember many summers my mom taking me to the library and we would fill up a wagon full of books from the library. And I had previously before moving there gotten an award in reading, um, like having read the most books in our class and like had gotten a gift certificate to a restaurant for that you know so it was i think that specifically just made my mom feel a little uneasy um and she just i think the vibes maybe she just didn't she didn't believe it and i certainly wasn't struggling at home um and so i think after a few more teacher parent conferences the same information was being told and at the, that point the same teacher mm -hmm, same mm -hmm. teacher and at that point, my mom um, kind of escalated things and ended up going to the principal um, and having like a principal teacher parent conference. And it kind of ended up launching a little bit of an investigation, I think partly because the teacher said during the conference that, you know, she didn't think it was unusual because black children are inferior to white children, um, which I think at that point was like, okay. <laughs> My, the, even the principal, I think, was really taken off guard, and uh, I was ended up having some formal teaching, uh, formal testing, um, to kind of prove where I was in terms of my level of learning. And um, other investigations were launched by the principal herself, and she was a really amazing principal and uh, did not stand for that kind of racism. And it turned out that the teacher actually was lying on me and um, had purposefully been changing my grades. Um, and at one point actually bragged about it to another teacher that another student, one of my classmates actually overheard and ended up telling the principal. So it was uh, a lot of unnecessary drama um, and a lot of uh, targeted hatred at such a young age. Um, and eventually I was removed from that class and the subsequent teacher was like, oh no, she's, she's smart. She's where, she's exactly where she's at. If not, you know, doing better than some of the other kids in different subjects. And so, um, later, uh, that first teacher ended up getting suspended and then I think later maybe dismissed. Hmm. Um, that's kind of where it all started. Wow. And as you guys were sorting through it, as your parents were going through all this with you, um, did you, other than racism, did any other motive come up? Was it that she just wanted you out of her class or was it that there was a point 
that she was trying to make or you know i i it's possible um i think at the time just probably not being exposed to a lot of other kids of color in the school certainly may have been part of the motive um but i think I think the actual statement of like, no, black children are inferior to white children, I think was probably like what sealed the deal um, in terms of, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's, re- maybe she really did believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't even implicit bias. It was, <laughs> it was very explicit. explicit. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I think, uh, I think that regardless of what her motive was, she still changed the grades. Like she changed my record to, appear as though I was failing uh, to match what she really did believe. So, I mean, I just, I wasn't actually failing. So I think even if she did believe like, oh, well, black children are inferior to white children, but this black child's doing really well. You know, she didn't question that. She just instead, I think, made the records reflect what she really did believe. Um, So I, I can't really, I can't really ponder on what other motives there may have been. At the time, it felt very racial because I was just the only little black girl in her class. Mm -hmm. Um, And like I said, there was just only a handful of other black students. And I don't actually know if anyone else in that entire school um, ever experienced any other type of um, prejudice like that. So your siblings did not have that that experience? No, not really. I think... um, you know, no, I don't believe so. My brother didn't, and uh, my sister Leslie did not. I think they experienced kind of the normal things, like, oh, your child's hyper, <laughs> and you should <laughs> consider ADHD medication, but I think that's kind of normal for a, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of kids. And um, how, how did it affect you after that year or even during that year? Yeah, I, I think as a child, um, I don't think I fully synthesized what was happening um, besides the fact that I was really shy when I was younger. And so this was like a lot of attention. And I think I remember crying and feeling like, what did I do wrong? Or like, why am I in trouble? Or why, why, why do we have to go through all of this? Um, so I don't think I was really able to synthesize it until later. Um, and, and I think, sure, at that time, my parents were like, okay, well, now we need to talk about racism and I'm not sure if they probably ever really breached that subject with me that much before that Mm. Um, but certainly then it was like okay well now we have to sit down and talk about this and you know this is this is something someone targeted you most likely because of your race Um, and there was evil and hate in that person's heart towards you and it doesn't have to be anything that you did it doesn't have to be anything besides the fact that your your skin is the color that it is um, and that there may be other instances that happen like this in the future. And so um, just you know, something to be aware of and something that you might have to fight against as you go forward. And when, when you were having that conversation, how much longer after second grade was that? The next incident? No, no, no. When, when they were explaining to you why you were a target in mm-hmm. that situation, was that when you were still in second grade or was that... Okay, so, no, they, they was, had, so they had a conversation with you yeah, in, in second grade, time. yeah, okay. around right. that time. And I think it was most likely, it, it came later once a lot of the dust settled and it was very obvious how things had, had shaken out. I don't think initially when I was, when my parents were being told that I was failing these subjects, they initially thought it was racism at all. I think they initially were like, oh, well, she's probably having difficulty adjusting, um, but I think you know, like 
growing up, they never really saw any of that. They never really saw me struggle. Um, you know, as I mentioned, when I was young, I read a bunch of books. I was always like, I remember my kindergarten teacher telling my mom, like, Elise is so ahead of the other students. Like she knows her colors, she knows her numbers, she knows how to read. And I mean, that was my mama. That was Mama Boykin. She was a tiger mom. She'd never <laughs> let me spend any summers, uh, you know, wasting my brain away. She had mm -hmm. lots of books for me, lots of things to study. Um, you know, we had multiplication rap always playing in the car, which probably was like kid bop, kids bop <laughs> <laughs> version it's, of, you know. <laughs> It was very geeky, but I remember, you know, singing in the car, five times five is 25, you know, just like uh -huh. that was my mom. She just uh -huh. always had us, um, she, you know, she was very focused on education for all of us at a young age. And so I think, um, I think her ears always kind of, you know, was like something's, something is off uh, with this from the beginning. So mm -hmm. I think it's because of my parents uh, pushing um, and and pushing and pushing and not believing this story, I think is really how we got to where we were. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like later on, when you sort of look back, started to look back on mm -hmm. that occurrence, did it have a very big effect on you or was it just sort of the landscape or, or yeah. you, you put it past you because you were so young at the time? I really think that I, you know, children are so resilient. I think I bounced back. I, I did. I remember going on to the next year um, in third and fourth and fifth grade and, you know, feeling like, almost feeling like it hadn't happened, um, you know, because I just went back to, uh, you know, my normal studies with school and the normal things that my parents were, were doing with us in terms of activities and extracurriculars and all of that so I, I don't think it really really hit me until later when I as I got older and certainly as I ran into other instances where I was like oh yeah that this happened to me before this feels familiar uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but I don't think as a young eight-year-old um, and maybe it was because of my parents their support their love and their you know um, uh, pushing against those kind of negative thoughts in my head and negative feelings that were directed at me that I don't think I was able, like I don't think I was actually given the opportunity to kind of just collapse at that moment, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. And so you said later you'd sort of look back and say, oh, it's happening again. What were some of the instances where you found yourself in a similar situation or maybe worse or not yeah. as bad? I think I think a lot of the other instances came actually because um, we moved back to California, and so all through high school. And how old were you when you moved back to California? I started sixth grade here okay. back in California so you're in about NorCal. Four years in yeah. the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, okay. so I was probably about twelve or so when we moved back, um, and so high school um, and the middle school, high school, all normal. I don't have any recollection really of um, any like real overt racial kind of situations. I think I do remember as a high school student getting ready to graduate and I knew then I wanted to be a doctor. I do remember counselors um, telling me as you get ready to exit high school, think about college applications and things like that, um, saying, well, you know, med school, eh, you, should, you should keep your keep your differential open basically um, you know don't don't be so close-minded uh, you know there's so much for you to do you don't have to be a doctor and I remember thinking of, 
okay. <laughs> and then certainly later when I got into college, um, you know, and this is not a, I love my alma mater, but it's hard to weed out some bad apples, right? There's, there's always a few that, that kind of sneak in. Um, but I remember several professors actually telling me like, or asking me, um, why are you trying so hard? Like, why do you, why do you care so much about your grade for this, for this class? Um, and then even first day, actually first day of college before I even, I guess it wasn't first day. It was probably orientation, uh, starting about starting to think about what I wanted to pick as a, um, uh, like declare as my major. Um, I remember saying I wanted to be pre-med. They changed me to pre-nursing. And then the first day of them telling me like, uh, you should think about other things. Like you don't have to be a doctor. Um, you should take this aptitude test and figure out what you're actually good at. And I remember just thinking like, I haven't even taken a class yet. I haven't even failed yet. <laughs> like, like give me a chance. Like let me try <laughs> to start on this path. Um, and I think it was just, it's just weird that there was so much discouragement um, in me wanting to pursue medicine my genetics teacher told me like you'll never get into medical school unless you get in through affirmative action and i wasn't even feeling her class i had an a minus huh. <laughs> i had an a minus in her class and, and that it, was here in northern california this yeah was not yeah it was somewhere less so diverse. it's just it's just been interesting i think that um people had a very closed-minded idea of what i should be wanting to pursue as a career based on the color of your skin I think so yeah. I didn't hear them saying that to, to other classmates um, and I you know certainly as I went higher and higher in my pre-med courses uh, there became less and less people that look like me you know initially your bio 101 class there's tons of diversity and then by the time you reach advanced bio and organic chem there's a lot of people who've weeded out in their pre-med journey trail right and so by that time, I'm like, oh, it's, it's just me sometimes, right? So I think that's, that's what I've had to come to the conclusion sometimes is like, you know, I, I didn't hear them saying that to other people and I did not think that I was inferior to other classmates in terms of my grades. I mean, I, so there was a couple hard classes for sure, but overall, I didn't think I was like doing worse than anybody else. Um, and so I think just discouragement towards pursuing medicine was like very, very potent and in my face. And the listing you as pre-nursing, that was before you'd taken any classes, they just switched you from pre-medicine to pre-nursing? I or? think the guidance counselor thought that I should be pre-nursing because my first year while I was there, my transcript says pre-nursing. Because I remember people asking me like, you're pre-med, but why does your transcript say pre-nursing? And it didn't get changed until later. But mm -hmm. I remember very clearly telling the guidance counselor, I am a pre-med, I'm not going into nursing. I want to be a doctor. I've known mm -hmm. I wanted to be a doctor from very, very young age. And I want to try to pursue this first before I kind of change, change my mind or change careers. So um, mm -hmm. I have no idea why I was switched. And were most of or all of the counselors white? I, I can't say with certainty that all of them were. Um, they probably were. I, I remember only meeting with two mm -hmm. um, during my very first year there. And uh, one of them was white. She was the one who initially told mm -hmm. me, like, you, sh you should think about something else. 
I think the other one wasn't much better. I don't remember if she was white or not, to be honest. Um, and But I remember just like giving up on the counseling office at that point uh-huh. and just uh-huh. being like, I'll figure this out myself. Striking out on your own. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, for better or for worse. Um, just kind of finding, finding a mentor later that was much mm-hmm. more helpful in helping mm-hmm. me kind of course out my map. Mm-hmm. And how do you account for that determination despite what's actual discouragement from people that are in positions of authority like that? How, how, did, you, how did you do that? <laughs> I mean, how did that's you a really, keep going? That's a really good question, Dr. A, because, um, I mean, they're not, I don't want to make it sound like I never cried, I never got discouraged, because certainly mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. times when I just, I did feel distraught. I just felt like people were working against me. Um, but I think, I mean, I just, I give the credit back to my mom. She was always the first person I would call and um, I would talk through things with her and she would always just tell me that, you know, no one can Mm -hmm. determine your future. Mm -hmm. Um, And if this is something you wanna do, keep Mm -hmm. fighting. And, but there were other times when I certainly was like, whatever, I'm not listening to you. Like when the counselor handed me the aptitude test, I remember walking out of her office and throwing it in the trash immediately and just going on with my business. And so there were times when it definitely was like, kind of just brush your shoulders off, like you're wrong and mm-hmm. I'm gonna keep moving forward. That's amazing. Um, huh. I think a lot of people wouldn't have been able to, to do that with that kind of act of discouragement going on. Um, and did you later on meet some role models that continue to inspire you on your path to being a physician? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so while I was while I was at my undergrad, I met several people who saw potential in me very early. Uh, gave me many opportunities to be a peer health educator in our health clinic in our undergrad. Gave me opportunities to be um, in leadership positions for our like um, school union. Uh, gave me opportunities to be chair of this and you know, co-director of that. And this was and still in college. This was all in college, yeah. Uh-huh. And, it, and it was such a contrast, right? Because I could literally meet a professor who's like, you're never going to get into medical school um, unless they just let you in because they need you to meet a quota. And then I had another white, you know, mentor that's like, you're fantastic. I want to give you every opportunity to get your hands on something because you touch stuff and it turns into gold. You, or, you know what I mean? It was just, it was like such a night and day experience sometimes. Um, and I think that those people definitely encouraged me and believed in me. And then my parents believed in me and, you know, I'm a faith-based person as well. And I just always felt like this was my destiny, you know, and I just felt like I couldn't stop. I couldn't quit. Um, and so, yeah, to answer your question, absolutely, there were mentors who definitely believed in me, wrote me wonderful letters, um, and found me actually into, one of the mentors actually found me into a pipeline program here at UC Davis. That's actually how I met one of uh-huh. the former deans here um, who got me into a program where they helped pre-meds study for the MCAT. So, I mean, like I said, many, many doors opened while other people were trying to slam that door closed. Uh How old were you when you first locked into being a doctor? 
I think I was five. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I believe I was like five years old. What was the inspiration when you were five? Was it a a doctor that you had or was it like a television show or a book you read? Yeah, I think, um, so I remember being really young and getting a play doctor kit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember, so my younger sister and brother were super rambunctious when we were growing Mm -hmm. up and and I was kind of a bookworm. They were kind of always like out running around and getting cuts and scrapes and bruises. And I remember them coming in and, you know, bleeding. And I would be like, oh, let me see, let me see. (laughs) And I think my mom thought I was a little weird. (laughs) But she started, you know, after I kept doing that a few times, um, because I wanted like a closer look inside. Like I wanted to see what was underneath. And so she actually started buying me anatomy books. And I mean, they were above my level. Um, Wait, even how, the, how old were you when she started buying? I was like that? five. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I was five. And some of them were geared towards like younger Kids. age. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was about five years old and she started buying me anatomy books and some of the big picture ones where they have like the full body and they have every page as you turn it. It's like mm-hmm. a different layer, um, you know, the skin, the muscle, the bones. And then she bought me a little mini skeleton and I remember reading about the bones and I just remember being very fascinated by mm-hmm. the human body and wanting to know how it worked and how to treat it and, you know, medical diagnoses. I mean, that's a little bit, you know, far-fetched for someone who's five. But I think in, in general, it was like at a very basic level wanting to understand mm-hmm. um, how the human body worked. And so I think it, I think it kind of took root there because we did not have anyone in our family um, who was a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I did not have any, um, you know, family friends of my parents that were doctors. So Mm -hmm. I think the inspiration just mostly came from being interested in the human body and then probably my own subsequent visits with doctors as like a young child, Mm -hmm. which were very positive. Mm -hmm. And and so all this time you're saying I'm going to be a doctor when I grow up. I assume your mom and dad were like, yep, she's going to be a doctor. (laughs) Or were they, or they kind of like, hey, yeah, yeah, at least we'll believe that when we see it? Or, uh, how, how were they regarding that? You know, my mom, um, she, you know, I think she believed in me from the beginning. I think once I really held grasp of this idea, and it probably kind of became more concrete as I went through high school when I was like, okay, yeah, I definitely want to become a doctor. I think she was like, I'm with you behind, like, I'm behind you all the way. And she was very supportive. She never, never once, even after failing step one twice, she never ever doubted me. She never (laughs) believed I couldn't do it. Um, Same thing with my dad. They were just, they were just great supportive parents. They were like, if you want to do it, keep trying. Um, Maybe your journey won't look like everybody else's. That's okay. Like you could still get to the finish line. And like I said, my mom's biggest line growing up was just like, don't let anyone determine your future like you determine your future if you Mm -hmm. want to become a doctor keep going keep trying find another way Mm -hmm. I remember telling my dad (laughs) after the second time (laughs) after the second time I failed step one which to me you know back then was just like oh it's over it's like the world has ended there's just there's no way I can't come back from this I can't get into residency after this I remember calling my dad and telling him and he was like I was like daddy I, I failed again and I was crying and he was like so um what are you gonna do now 
And I was like, well, I can't try again. It's over. He's like, that's not true. (laughs) I just remember him being so calm and Mm. so just nonchalant about it. Just Mm. like, so? (laughs) Like, you failed. So what? (laughs) Like, try again. Um, And that's just how they were. That's Mm -hmm. that's just how they were. (laughs) And I I guess we've sort of fast. I'm going to go back in time a little bit in a few minutes. But Mm -hmm. but because you sort of fast forwarded to the steps, which I also Mm -hmm. wanted to ask you about. Did did what like happened in second grade or or more recently in college with mm-hmm. the discouragement you were getting actively from professors and guidance counselors did that sort of come back to you after you failed step one the second time or even the first time i mean did, did you have moments of doubt where you were just like yeah maybe they were right i don't think so much the second grade incident but certainly um, there were times when I could hear some of the voices echoing in my head uh, from college, yeah, mm-hmm. and feeling like, dang, like I, I, li- I lived up to that expectation that mm-hmm. they thought I was going to fail, and now I failed. Um, and that hurt. <laughs> like, even thinking about it now, like, it brings kind of tears to my eyes because it was like, yeah, that hurt. And feeling like um, I wanted so badly to prove that wrong and mm-hmm. not live up to that statistic or that Mm -hmm. expectation that you know um the belief like children of color are not going to perform at the same standard as other kids um or that i'm going to need extra help or that i'm going to fail you know i just think that uh i didn't want that to be true um it ended up being true (laughs) and that's okay i mean that's what happened and i i bounced back from that and um you know like i've had a really i had a really great even after failing (laughs) (laughs) even after failing um so many positive things actually came out of failing (laughs) believe it or not and i know i talked about this during our last podcast well tell me some more about that (laughs) people can go by the way for our listeners you can go back and listen to elisa's great (laughs) podcast from november of 2019 but tell tell me about the the positive things that came out of that well i think once i stopped hiding behind that like I didn't want anyone to know that I failed twice, right? Um, I think once I stopped hiding behind it and I actually became a resource for other medical students that were failing, had failed, um, you know, my phone number and emails started circulating around and I just remember getting <laughs> random calls and random texts and random emails from people saying like, I heard you helped this person get past this. And I mean, this happened years after I had failed. I was on into uh, residency at that point <laughs> and still getting um, you know referrals almost right of people wanting to talk to me about their experience um, and besides that it gave me you know the courage I guess to start the step one prep course that I you know developed I guess created um, at UC Davis and subsequent students really enjoyed so I think I think there was a lot of positives that came out of it. And then, you know, having, I think having, um, having failed took me off by a year with my own class and, um, my whole entire third year changed in terms of when I did all of my rotations. And, um, by the time I did my IM rotation, it just so happened, I got to work with Dr. Keenan, (laughs) Uh who was the, you know, who is the program director here. And 
he liked me, you know? I think it, it's, it's just interesting. I think, you know, I think back and I say, well, if I hadn't failed, if I hadn't got off course, I wouldn't have helped other people. I wouldn't have started this course. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I wouldn't have met Dr. Keenan. Maybe he would have just said, oh, you're just another student that failed twice and never worked with me personally, right? And um, didn't meet, you know, Dr. A, you, and become have you as a great mentor as well, right? So I think um, I, I look at those as the positive things that came out of that, that mm-hmm. I'm not sure all of those dice or uh, sorry dominoes would have gotten placed in that order perfectly if I hadn't had that catastrophe happen to me that kind of changed the entire course of what happened later. Mm. I could be conjecturing, but I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like part part of that um, you know led me on a great course to where I am now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of the falling down, getting up, dusting <laughs> yourself off. With your dad's <laughs> yeah. matter of fact. Oh, I know, um, right? I mean, of course, it could have. It would have been nice if I just failed once. I, I feel like I could have gotten um, all of these other great and, positive and things. The, and the rule is three times you're out. Was that the? So you, you, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So you were down to your last chance. Oh yeah. At the point at which you took it the the third time. Yeah, it was. Um, I I don't know if that was a hardcore like a, a hard policy at the time, but I think it was kind of like the general rules with like we'll give you three chances to pass step one and if you don't pass by the third time like we can pretty much determine if we want you to continue and I think you know having failed one time already kind of you know in theory closes a lot of doors in terms of like what you ultimately might want to do right surgery or OB-GYN it makes it a much harder um, to kind of pursue harder specialties Um, and then I think certainly failing twice was like, ooh, even for IM or family medicine, that might still be a really big red flag. Um, and so I think their their uh, perspective was like, if you fail three times, like it's, it might be almost impossible to have you match into into a residency program. So um, and that was just the general rules was like, you get three three chances. So that third time I took it, I remember. I still actually remember the day I took the test because I remember feeling the most confident I ever had that day. And I don't actually know where that confidence came from because I was still very terrified the day that my results came out, like to the point where I remember telling one of my um, mentors, like, can you open the results and just call me, <laughs> tell me like I can't physically do it today to open it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I do remember feeling when I left the building of the test, like the test taking building, I remember feeling like, I think it. I did it. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So most confident in your whole life, or most confident just for, te- for <laughs> just the, the test? T- yeah, the just the test uh-huh. taking, uh-huh. just the test taking. But I do remember the weeks leading up. I was like, I think I'm actually ready this time to take this test. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know fully what made the difference. Um, you know, I, I I had very drastically changed my study schedule, my study strategy. Uh, which is what I recommend to people now. What I did back then, um, and so maybe that was it. Mm-hmm. But I think it, I think it was just my time. Like it was my, it was finally my time to pass. <laughs> huh. You better watch out because there's a lot of pre-med students <laughs> and medical students that listen to this podcast. So you're going to be getting a lot of emails <laughs> in the coming months, I imagine. I'm happy to help. So, what was the role of mentors in helping you kind of get back up and? push on and pass it on the third try and move on with your career? Yeah, I think um, 
In terms of mentors for, for failing the step one exam, I think um, actually Dr. Butani, I'm not sure if you remember him, he was oh, a yeah, pediatrician, yeah, he's mm -hmm. one of the prior deans. Um, he was on the, um, I forget the name of the committee now, but it's some kind of uh, CSP, uh, I believe it was yeah. back then. Uh, yeah. Clinic, uh, Student perform committee on student performance. Yes, yeah. he was on CSP back then, and um, you know, if you ever work with Dr. Butani, he has very high standards, yes, <laughs> very very high standards uh -huh. for education and patient advocacy and treatment and things like that. Um, but you know, I remember him um, in our CSP meetings, and I just remember him having this very sly uh, smile on his face that was just like. I believe in you. I don't know. It's weird. He never actually like, like conversed those words. Um, but I just remember him feeling like, I felt like he was rooting for me, and I felt like my other deans were rooting for me, despite like having failed. I didn't have any really negative experiences with CSP. Um, I I felt like even though sure they were disappointed that I failed and I needed more time and I was throwing off my schedule and probably other people's. Um, I, I truly felt like they were like in my corner and mm -hmm. I think I did really feel supported like I could pass like they believed I could do it it was just a matter of you know time I guess mm -hmm. um, outside of that you know the people that were supporting me were still my family uh, I don't know that I actually um, talked to any of my other mentors um, probably out of a little bit of embarrassment <laughs> with what was going on. Um, I don't know that I brought it to a whole lot of light of other people. And I wish I had of because I think that, um, you know, the mentors that I had made at the time would have been extremely, extremely supportive, you know, mm -hmm. and, and very, um, you know, open with probably other times that they had experiences, maybe not specifically with step one, but with something else. And I think like you draw encouragement, right, from that when you hear like, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't fail this, but I, you know, I had I had this difficulty, I had this trouble, mm -hmm. um, and this is how I got past it. Um, and so I wish that I had actually opened myself up a little bit more to hear from other people, because I think uh, we, do, we don't normalize failure, and not that it should be normal, right, but just that these experiences people go through, you're not alone in. Um, and so I think had I opened myself up a little bit more to other mentors, I would have probably received some good advice. <laughs> mm -hmm. And felt, maybe even felt even more supportive, I guess, along the way. Yeah. So what are your sort of, I mean, so we talked about a couple of big things in your life. This episode in second grade, which, you know, you were young and mm -hmm. it sounds like you in a way, as you went on, brushed it off, and then it kind of came back in a big way in college, where mm -hmm. you're actively being discouraged from becoming a doctor. And then the steps pop up. Were there other situations in medical school where you just, you know, were like, you know, I, I don't know if, if I'm up for this, or, um, or was it mainly around these standardized exams? I think it was mainly around the standardized step one exam. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it and then it disappeared, Dr. Ronowitz. Like, as you might recall, I had never had any difficulty later with any of my shelf exams. Um, I did great on step two. I did fine on step two CK, and I passed step three. Like, it, it's like it just it kind of went away. Um, and I didn't really have any trouble um, in medical school with 
with failing. Although I, okay, I am reminded now, anatomy. <laughs> Even though you started at five years old, yes. you had trouble in anatomy. I had such trouble in anatomy. I remember, um, I actually remember um, one of my exams uh, fighting for one point, one extra point on my exam. And I remember the professor saying like, if it comes down to you needing that point at the end of the year, I'll give it to you. And actually anatomy, it came down to one point oh in passing. Wow. And I went back and I said, I desperately need this point to wow. pass this course. Um, and and, and he gave Tucker? it to me. It was Dr. Tucker, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but besides, besides anatomy, the very first semester, I actually did not have any, you know, troubles uh, with with medical school courses. I wouldn't say that I was crushing every course, um, but certainly the pass fail, you know, made mm -hmm. it fairly easy to kind of get by for most courses. And I did better in others um, mm -hmm. than I did in, in some, mm -hmm. you know. So, but I, I think overall, I was I was fairly average. I remember meeting with Dr. Um, Oh, her name is escaping me. Dr. Joanna. Yeah, yeah uh -huh. Dr. Joanna Arnold. Um, and feeling like I was, I was doing fine. Um, <laughs> so I think it was it was surprising that I did so bad on the steps. And I, I just wonder if I was just not a great test taker at the time or, if or maybe, maybe or, I didn't. Well, also, I mean, I don't know. I have a theory with our students that it's a lot of you guys are clinicians. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not it's not that there's not, you know, for people listening to this podcast, it's not mm -hmm. that there's not clinical material on mm -hmm. step one, but it's that it that clinical relevance really comes in play. Plus, you know, third year you're taking shelves mm -hmm. <coughs> with every clerkship that you're doing, so you're practicing yeah. for step two. So mm -hmm. it may just be more regular practice, the tempo of taking an exam. And then, you know, you're seeing a lot of clinical material come to life during your clerkships. And then you roll into step two and do fine on that. It's kind of one of the theories yeah. I have. Um, I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, the, the irrelevance of what DNA does and all of these other random <laughs> proteins, I just never could keep it straight. <laughs> <laughs> Without the clinical context. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah which is, sure. I guess, why clinical context can be so important to, mm -hmm. a, to a burgeoning student. <laughs> um, what, what kind of, so, well, let me just uh, ask you one other question. What's been the hardest thing about COVID this year for you? Oh, wow. I mean, you're a pretty resilient individual. <laughs> and I think that uh, this year has been really tough for yeah. a lot of people for a lot of reasons. But what would you say has been the hardest thing for you? And you've been out there taking care of those COVID patients yeah. through much of this year. I think personally, it's been the loss of connection with other people. Um, you know, as you, you probably know, Dr. A, my husband's a minister. Um, and so we go to a very large church and I feel like that's been such a, a sense of connection and community and, you know, not being able to gather on Sundays and see church mm -hmm. family um, has been hard. Not being able to see my own family, right? My parents are older-ish. <laughs> Forgive me, mom and dad. <laughs> um, and so, you know, trying to keep them mm -hmm. safe. Yeah. And then, you know, my sister and brother both have children mm -hmm. and not being able to see 
my nieces has been been hard as well. And then this was all during my first year of marriage when I thought that, you know, my husband and I would go on a trip for our anniversary and mm -hmm. do lots of young couple stuff, go out and explore. And so I think um, that sense of loss of identity, um, adventure, you know, all of that stuff I think has been mm -hmm. has been really hard. And then importantly, also at work, you know, I don't get to hang out with my coworkers and my co-residents, I should say, and I, you know, very much enjoy hanging out with them. And so mm -hmm. I think that has been really hard. And of course, seeing the number of deaths um, pile up without a doubt mm -hmm. has been difficult. Mm -hmm. And have you been very worried about bringing the COVID home to your husband? Well, my husband actually works as a chaplain here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so he's been vaccinated. So he's been vaccinated. Oh. So I haven't had to worry um, nearly as much about him. I had no him. idea that he was a chaplain here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I haven't, I haven't had to worry about him, but certainly um, he's worried about seeing his grandma. I've been worried about seeing my grandma and my family. Mm -hmm. And sure. so um, I think with the double hit of us both possibly being exposed, we've been extra careful of not like seeing anyone. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. And so I think as like a you know, newly married couple not being able to kind of spend time with your other in-laws, it's been hard. Because uh, I think they were very much looking forward to us like visiting all the time. And mm -hmm. so that's been, rough. Mm -hmm. well, that's been rough. So if you step back from all the things we've been talking about this afternoon, um, what are your sort of, you know, these people are listening to this and it's part of the Surviving Crisis podcast series. Mm -hmm. um, and you've, yours were sort of, kind of the college situation unwound over probably months to a couple, few years, yeah. right? Um, and then second grade was probably over a few months. And then I'm going to assume that you had other episodes where because of the color of your skin, you ran into obstacles. But what are some of the life lessons or advice you have about getting through these things? What, what's been like the most helpful to you? either in terms of strategies or support or what have you? You know, I think I think my parents, and I've given them so much credit, but I'm gonna give them a little more credit. Um, I think it's been a sense of identity, honestly. I think, I, I think my parents did a really good job in instilling who I am and where I come from, even though where I come from is a little muddy um, in terms of like, you know, tracing out our lineage. I don't come from any great, you know, judges or bankers or anything like that. But in terms of knowing like African-American history, um, you know, my parents, I remember my mom um, buying us, you know, books about great uh, African-Americans that have contributed to science and agriculture and you know, engineering, all mm -hmm. kinds of things like that. And I remember reading the, those those stories um, and just feeling a sense of pride, um, feel, and always feeling a sense of pride of who I am and my standing in my family and in my community and my church. Um, I think those, I think that contrasts so starkly with how other people have seen me. You know, other people have seen me as like, you're dumb or you're stupid or you're inferior. You can't do it, you can't make it. Um, but then how I see myself and how my family sees me, mm -hmm. how my community sees me is like, no, you're great, you're fantastic. You can do anything you want. Um, and I think I've always 
kind mm. of tilted more to that proud sense of identity. Um, mm. And I think that I haven't lost that. I haven't lost who I, who I believe I am, right? Um, despite how other people have chosen to see me. So I think I, w- I want to believe that that's probably where a lot of the resilience comes from, even on those dark days when I was maybe giving up on myself sometimes too, because that's just inevitable. Um, I was reminded still of who I am and where where I do come from. Um, I I think that's I think that's probably where I think that's probably where it's come from. Mm-hmm. And any sort of just approaches to life or getting through difficult circumstances because that's sort of who you are yeah what's part of your yeah I don't know your fabric I guess Mm -hmm. you could call it um I you know I think I'd have to go back to just not letting anyone determine my future I think those Mm -hmm. words were so impounded in me at a young age by my mom and I think that I've just never lost that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just feel like despite the obstacles that have come along, I feel like I've always just gone back to, okay, this was a roadblock. This was a, you know, setback. Um, how do we, how, how do we look at it from a different angle? How, how can I still reach that goal? Um, I'm not going to let this one person, this one statement, this one failure, you know, determine the full outcome of what happens to me um, and certainly not let it determine my future. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it helps that I just really wanted to become a doctor. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it helps that that was like, there were no other backup plans. It was like, I want to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be a great doctor. I, ha- I have to do this. I want to do this. This is what I'm meant to do. Um, and I think my mentality was like, there just is no plan B. So, uh, I think that kind of propelled me forward. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. One last question for you about this chief residency. <laughs> um, yes, about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are you nervous about it? Um, you know, I'm, I'm getting more excited uh-huh. about it. I was probably a little bit nervous uh, when, when I was first asked, and certainly a lot of imposter syndrome kind of rose back up you know I don't think specifically um you know the failures I think the failures I've gone through always pop up in my head sometimes when people ask me to do things that I feel like oh no not me you can't mean me you know (laughs) um so yeah sure there was there was a lot of imposter syndrome with that but I think as the months have counted down and you know, I've gotten many opportunities to be the senior resident on wards teams. It's like, okay, I'm mm-hmm. feeling, starting to feel like I can begin to fill these shoes a little bit. Um, so I'm much more excited uh-huh. <laughs> now. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and I can tell you with confidence that they wouldn't have asked you if they didn't know you'd be great at it. <laughs> it's just not the way the program works any other way than they want the most highly competent people Aww. leading the residents. Thank you, Dr. A. Um, yeah, no, it was fun working with you on the wards because your, your leadership skills are remarkable. I mean, it was just fun that you just sort of took over and ran rounds <laughs> and took us to the bedside and made your teaching points and ran the discussion and, you know, told the patients what we were going to be doing that day. It was, it was, it was kind of 
kind of makes my life easier when <laughs> <laughs> the resident just steps in and, and runs the show. So that was fun. Any last thoughts? Yeah, I guess I'll just say that um, there's always there's always two sides to every story. And I think I've talked a mm-hmm. lot today about failure and, um, you know, maybe some of the discrimination and discouragement that I have uh, encountered along this journey. Um, but I do just want to highlight that there have been such amazing people also that have mm-hmm. pushed me and driven me forward, people outside my family, um, mentors, teachers, um, you know, classmates. So I think that it's it's important as as important it is to remember the failures. So I think those are the things that we 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 throw a lot of light on because we bounce back from those. But just also remembering that this journey was not done with just you know discouragement. That there was a lot of other great moments along the way of people you know really helping to propel me forward and open doors. And so I like to think about those moments too, as I don't think I could be here without all those wonderful people that said great positive things about me too. Um, And I'll just end by saying, you know, for everyone who's out there listening, (laughs) you know, no one person, no one thing can, you know, determine your future as Mama Boykin would say. I think those are just (laughs) great words to live by. Um, And, you know, you truly can't accomplish anything and you truly can't come back from, from anything. Great. Well, thank you very much for being here on Mountain Lion today. Again, Elise. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast, everyone. It's been enjoyable to have you join us. The song that led into this podcast was by Gregory Allen Isakoff, and it's called The Stable Song. We're going to go out with a song slash poem by Maya Angelou called The Human Family, which is from Caged Bird Songs an album I definitely recommend checking out. It is time for the preachers, the rabbis, the priests, pundits, and the professors to believe in the awesome wonder of diversity. It is time for parents to teach young people early on that in diversity there is beauty and there is strength. I note the obvious differences in the human family. Some of us are serious, some thrive on comedy, some declare their lives are lived at true profundity, and others claim they really live the real reality. The variety of our skin tone can confuse, amuse, delight, brown and pink and beige and purple, tan and blue and white. I've sailed upon the seven seas and stopped in every land wonders of the world, not yet one common man. I know 10,000 women called Jane and Mary Jane. I've not seen any two who really were the same. Mirror twins are different, although their features jive, and lovers think quite different thoughts while lying side by side. We love and lose in China, we weep on England's moors, we laugh and moan in Guinea, and thrive on Spanish shores. In Finland, are born and die in Maine. In minor ways we differ, in major we're the same. I note the obvious differences between each sort and type, but we are more alike, my friend, than we are unalike. We are more alike, my friend, than we 